This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to your Tuesday podcast, getting you up to speed on everything Oregon Duck related. Also, real quick, uh, make sure, go check out the new YouTube page uh, for the site where we're going to p- be posting some specific stuff uh, around the Oregon football program, basketball program, when that happens, soccer, not soccer, but softball, baseball, recruiting, all of that stuff. Uh, Oregon Ducks on 24-7 Sports, make sure to check that out. Uh, as well. You also can find our full podcast videos on that. We'll link uh, those onto the Duck Territory site as well. But guys, we've got some pretty big news after speaking with Oregon head coach Mario Cristobal on Monday uh, about the status of a bunch of players who are hurt. Some of it is good. Some of it is bad. Um, Let's Break this injury report down after speaking with Crystal Ball on Monday. First, with probably the worst news of the day, and that's Cam McCormick is out for the season. It's what we feared uh, the most. Uh, you know, we, we had a good feeling that this was going to happen, and unfortunately, we got the confirmation of it. Just awful news for a, a player who has spent three years trying to get himself back to rehab. Uh, Jared, you've watched the offense predominantly. Just real quick, the impact this will have on that position group. It'll be a decent impact. Uh, the tight end room is, is deep. They got a lot of options to play. Um, it was in, very interesting, though. Cam McCormick actually started against Ohio State. He was the first tight end out there. Uh, they ran a lot to, to his side. He pulled. He was actually really great in pass blocking and run blocking. Um, it's just really devastating news. You know, he... And what makes it even worse is that he, he gets injured after he makes his first catch in, like, in three years. And it's a great catch in traffic, holds onto the ball, converts a first down. Um, seeing it live, it really it wasn't really sure what was going on. Um, but, you know, looking through the binoculars, it just didn't look great. And then watching it on replay, it just looked like somebody came in from behind him and upended him. Just really devastating news. It's going to impact the team. Uh, it, can, it, it could also be a rallying point for the team, for that tight end group. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be – it's just unfortunate that we're not going to be able to see Cam again this season. Maybe uh, ever again, by the way. I would. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that could speak totally out of turn, but could this be the end of the line? Feels like it. Um, really notable that it said it was the other leg that was mm-hmm. dealt with here. He had a left leg injury that was the one that kept him out for the last couple of years. This is his right. Um the fact that that I mean I I think when we watched in the moment we thought it was the same leg and we just figured oh that injury that leg's kind of weak and, and it, he re-injured right. it but it sounds like it's a totally new injury and that even in and of itself is hard because now he's got two legs he'll have to deal with for the rest of his life which are going to be never going to be the same so this is heavy and hard and it's it sucks so um, hopefully everything turns out well from him from here on out and hey 
I'm obviously the door's open if he wants to give it another shot, but you just kind of wonder after, oh, I don't even know how to, it's just hard to put into words, but you just wonder what he'll, what he'll do next. It's tough. The surprising news before the game started was Justin Flo would also not be available for this Ohio State game. And following the game, Mario Cristobal said that uh, this was a bit of news that came as a surprise because the injury happened in the Fresno State game the week before. And they practiced on Sunday. They didn't know about it. Uh, on Monday, they I'm assuming they didn't know about it either, even though they didn't practice. And they got word of the injury Tuesday. Um, and Cristobal on Monday, after a couple of days of review, you know, didn't really say he was out for the season, um, but did say that it's a pretty significant injury. We'll not be seeing him for a while, um, which is unfortunate. And Eric, this creates now the second two games in, they've lost their opening day starter in Drew Mathis. They've now lost his backup and Justin Flo. I think we've all been in, in agreement, though, that Flo would eventually take over that job. But nonetheless, they've lost their two top inside linebackers. This now creates a depth issue for Oregon at inside linebacker. Yeah, it's it's pretty significant here. And you also don't know exactly what the status for Keith Brown is, who was the replacement mm-hmm. starter, a true freshman from the 21 class, a really highly regarded kid out of from the state of Oregon, Lebanon kid. Um Cristobal seemed to indicate it was not a significant injury, but that could be something to monitor for Saturday against Stony Brook. Do they play Keith or do they give him another week to wait for the start of Pac-12 play against Arizona later this month? Um, and if it's not him, it's Nate Hukliani, a former walk-on, who, by the way, played pretty darn good in that game. Mario Cristobal was asked, by the way, today to name some players who stood out, and Nate was one of the, the guys he mentioned. He said he played 59 snaps. By the way, just a slight digression means they are tracking snaps and have the data. They just don't want to give it to us, which which kind of chaps me a little bit here because uh, I'd love to know that information, Mario. So if you if you somehow hear this, you can send those over. You got my email. Um, <laughs> I'm never going to see an, an email. I know that my inbox no, never, no, 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 never no. see that come through. Um, but I digress. Just Nate, I thought played pretty well. The concern here is you get past him and they've converted a safety in Jeffrey Bassa, actually a guy who we talked about as a potential kickoff returner, talk about some athleticism he has there to play inside. And he was working the whole week there, according to Cristobal. Um, seemed like he was really encouraged by what he saw. 6'2", about 220 pounds. So he's not he's not a small, small guy. He's not a smaller safety. He's a bigger size safety. Um, obviously, a, a little bit smaller than what you traditionally like from, from the position um, at will. But It'll work, and it's a guy I think you'll probably see a fair amount. He changed his jersey. He used to be 20. He's now 33 for the position change. Um, Cristobal says the long-term plan, as in down the road, is for him to return to defensive back. But if we think Drew Mathis is out for the season, which I think we do, and if we think Justin Flo might miss a big chunk of the season, I think we could see Jeffrey Bossa playing a lot and continuing at this position throughout maybe the entirety of the season. Um, other names to know, Jabril McNeil, Jonathan Flo, uh, and then Michael Rossi, who's a walk-on, are, are kind of the other inside linebackers who could factor in there. I don't know if Flo, uh, Jonathan, being yeah, Jonathan Flo, if he really is going to factor in. I don't think he's even on the depth chart, but um, those are some names. Now, real quick note about Bossa. I think all three of us kind of noted during fall camp when we were in practice just how physically impressive he looked. And I, I think I – was the one that mentioned how he's as big, um, if not bigger, than Tyson Coleman. And he was a guy that started, I think, 
at one of the linebacker spots when Oregon played for the national championship in 2015. Uh, this is a guy that four, five, six, seven years ago would be a starting line or not a starting linebacker, but would be a linebacker at Oregon. And he was playing safety. Um, that's just how good of an athlete he was. So something to note there. Now, the next bit of news is Kayvon Thibodeau. And I think this is the one going into um, Monday's press conference. All three of us probably would agree. He's probably the most likely candidate to see the football field the soonest among him and Flo. And I kind of got that same vibe with Cristobal. He wouldn't come forward and say, oh, yeah, he'll be back for this game, you know, in specifics, you know, but he was – he was, it seemed more upbeat. He is listed on the depth chart. Justin Flo is not listed on the depth chart. I think that's a clear indication of the fact that Thibodeau's injury probably isn't nearly as bad. Um, but nonetheless, Cristobal noted it's it's tricky to, to pinpoint a, a hard time when he could come back. And is that much of a concern for this defense right now, Eric? Not right now, not with the two teams that are upcoming on the schedule. And again, reading the quote, which we have all the quotes on DuckTerror.com, a couple of uh, stories on the injuries. Um, it, it doesn't sound like it's going to be something they'll rush them back into. And they were cautious going into Ohio State. I think they'll remain cautious against Stony Brook. I think they'll remain cautious maybe against Arizona. Maybe that's the return date. Um, ankle sprains are tricky, like he says. Um, it's one of those things where they're pretty easy to re-aggravate, too. And you have to be careful and you have to continue to be meticulous and kind of preparing to come back. Um, so I don't, and what's the big picture concern with Kayvon Thibodeau? Well, if he's not playing against teams that are really competitive and can challenge Oregon, that's very significant. We also just saw Oregon win a game against the best team they're going to face all season without him. Um, and the two next opponents are nowhere near the caliber of Ohio state. In fact, I think Arizona and Stony Brook would probably be like 40 point underdogs against Ohio state. I mean, these are not good teams comparatively. Um, so Oregon can obviously win and be very successful on defense without Kayvon Thibodeau in those games. Who fills in? I think we're going to keep seeing a lot of Braden Swinson, a little bit more Trevin Maai and Jake Shipley. Um, DJ Johnson, probably something to note here. Christopher said he practiced last week only on third down situations with the defense, like pass rushing specific situations. That's also the only times we saw him in this last weekend's games. So I think we can kind of accept to see, expect to see those players. And another another one who kind of was sneaky at the end of the game, and, Matt, and Jared and I noticed on rewatch, um, and mm -hmm. I'll throw it to you because we can talk about how impressive it was, but Brandon Buckner, true freshman signee, 2021 class, he got in there and he was actually rushing the pass rusher on the, from the, you know, the, trying to get past the blind side block from the left tackle and kind of got held a couple of times and really was impressive with his technique and also just his acceleration to get there. Um, that might be another name to know off the edge, um, assuming Thibodeau's out for a minute. Yeah, that was those are going to be the guys um, who fill in for KT. Uh, Buckner was impressive. He, I only think I saw him three times in the rewatch, uh, two of which were on the final Ohio State drive with you know less than 30 seconds to go. But yeah, he, he's just a different type of pass rusher, which I think gave Ohio State's uh, left tackle some issues. Um, he blatantly was held on one of the one of the final plays, which was really impressive because he's just a different body type. He's short. He's shorter. He's six one, six two, but he's built heavy. He's two forty, uh, and he's going to have a, a, a different pass rushing capability than other players might. But in a general sense, I felt that this was the most upbeat Cristobal has been when discussing Kayvon Thibodeau and his injury. 
uh, you know, last week at his press conferences, he really didn't say anything, uh, you know, very mellow mood, just kind of told him, oh, you know, day to day, stuff like that. But this one actually sounded like he thought that KT was progressing and could see the field if it's against Stony Brook. I don't really see it. He'd have to be 100% healthy, honestly, to see KT going on going on the field and playing against Stony Brook. Uh, they don't. They shouldn't need him to win the game. They probably he probably won't play. He is listed listed on the death chart. He was listed on it last week against Ohio State and clearly didn't play. So that'll be something to monitor. Um, I'd like to just toss it back to uh, Bassa playing linebacker real quick. Um, Kind of gives me like very similar small shades of Troy Dye and moving to linebacker as a safety recruit. You know, like Bossa is a big kid, you know, and he's athletic enough where playing safety wouldn't be an issue. But I could also see him doing well this year in that, you know, that that linebacker role. And Oregon kind of reevaluating his position and saying, you know, if you add 15, 20 pounds. And you, you'll lose some athleticism, but he since he's already such an athlete, that might actually help Oregon in depth in linebacking. Another notable comparison would be Adrian Jackson from a safety in high school who plays mm-hmm. college linebacker. Um, I actually think kind of similar athletes too. Cristobal said yeah. that Jeffrey Bosser runs a 10 600 meters. He said that might not even be. He said that might actually be kind of yeah. selling him he short. He didn't want to offend him. Yeah. yeah, he didn't want to offend him. Was <laughs> his words. Um, and then the, just the last injury note before we can move on, Matt, is uh, Mace Funa. He left the game on Saturday, did not return. Cristobal seemed pretty upbeat about Mace, though. Um, said he expected he'd be good to go. He didn't. That good to go didn't come with the context of like this weekend, but it was definitely a good to go for the season. So I don't, it doesn't sound like it's a significant injury there. Um, and I already said with Keith Brown, he was pretty. It seemed like optimistic about that not being long term. Both those guys, I would say, are probably like maybe questionable to play though this weekend. Um, and I think some of that will come down to just what, like for Keith Brown, if he's eighty percent, some of that might be, hey, is it worth getting him some reps against Stony Brook? And if the answer is yes, he'll play. Um, and if the answer is no, let's get some of these other guys, the Jeffrey Bosses, maybe the Jabri of McNeils or Jonathan Flows, guys who haven't really played a whole lot, some run because it's important to maximize these opportunities these next two weeks against lesser opponents. They need to get these guys reps. The first two weeks, basically, so competitive. The starters played every t- every single down, yeah. or, or, yeah. or guys in the rotation did. So you got to move forward and, and get some younger guys some reps. Do we do we feel confident? I mean, learning what we did from the Ohio State win and seeing the talent. The I mean, it was obvious that the playbook was opened up against uh, against Ohio State as well. Like I, I think with the injuries that we know about. And the status of this team going into Stony Brook, they're going to win that game. Looking at the Arizona game, looking at the Stanford game that follows, um, knowing the injury information that we now know, knowing how prolific this offense can be when they open up the playbook, is there any kind of doubt in your eyes that a, a game could be dropped by Oregon in the next couple of weeks? Not really. Yeah, simple as that. It's just, I, honestly, it's as simple as that. I I was so impressed with their offense against Ohio State, specifically just their play designs and their offensive line. That you know, Stony Brook shouldn't be shouldn't have been a problem regardless of the situation at Ohio State. Arizona has shown a little bit of fight in them, but they are just not. They're not a talented team, and it's kind of as simple as that. Stanford was very impressive against USC, but at the same time, if you look at 
Stanford's power and their strength and their team and the offensive and defensive front, that is the exact weakness of USC. So they took advantage of that just like they normally do. But that'll be a, that'll be a good matchup. I'm excited for that. If uh, Of the next couple games that come through, that would be the only one where I could hypothetically see a situation where Oregon gets in trouble. But nah, nah. But nah. Uh, nah. With Stanford, I would say let's let's see what they look next like next week because we were sure. we thought they sucked against Kansas State and they did. They yeah. got kind of boat raced by the Wildcats and none of us saw that one coming. I think Jared might have picked Kansas State to win, but the, both Matt and I thought there might be a blowout for Stanford, yeah. and it wasn't at all. And then against USC, they looked awesome. Uh, we watched mm-hmm. a good chunk of that game, and Stanford's got some guys on offense that were pretty impressive, which surprised me because they were basically unable to do anything against Kansas State. So um, give me a couple more weeks to see what Stanford looks like before we that matchup. That would be the only one before the bye week, though, that I think has any should have anyone a little bit nervous. Arizona might not have a pulse in a couple weeks. Now, we learned, I, I think, quite a bit about how deep this football team is from Ohio State. Um I, I think I agree with what Eric said earlier on about how this game against Stony Brook needs to be an opportunity where some of these guys who haven't had a ton of reps, whether that's a Keith Brown who made really his first career act, saw his first career action against Ohio State, or maybe it's a Jeffrey Bossa or a Brandon Buckner guys that you mentioned that came on late in the game against Ohio State. They need to get on the football field and kind of develop their, their games, get acclimated to playing at the collegiate level, playing in games and understanding of you know roles and, and responsibilities within the defense on the offensive side of the football. Um, that needs to happen against Stony Brook. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that Cristobal brought up the fact that you know he, he's, he's really excited to see how this team responds from the win at Ohio State because this could be a situation where like I'm not no one's sitting here saying Stony Brook's going to win at Ohio State that would be like the biggest upset in sports history if if that happened but this is where programs learn to develop and become elite teams and elite programs year over year because Cristobal like he noted that fans are excited the teams are excited but the coaching staff popped on the tape. And they found lots of stuff that they need to get better at. Yeah, no, I thought that was really notable, Matt, because um, you come off a win like that. And I think the question kind of was worded in a way that led him there. Um, not, none, of, none of us asked the question, um, but it was a question that kind of was like, hey, how do you keep these guys focused? And his response was, well, like, it's not that we have to keep them focused. The team's not good enough yet. There's still yeah. a lot of mistakes to make. Uh, I think he said, basically, you watch the tape and there's so many errors on it, so many things that can be corrected and improved upon. That if the guys are content with that, that's a problem. He said it wasn't even a choice to kind of rest on your laurels there. So um, I love that answer. I thought that was a very encouraging answer. I did. I mean, I, I maybe I argue the semantics of how the question was asked, but I did want to kind of hear if, how he would answer that sort of a question of just like you guys are coming off the best win in program history, maybe in non-conference play. Certainly the best since you've been the head coach. Is how do you monitor? How do you kind of you know kind of try to work against? A letdown and he addressed it head on basically said that's not an option um and, and i believe him i think this is going to be a team that comes out against stony brook and plays its best football um maybe obviously it's a much lesser opponent but i think it's been two weekends they've won two games by seven points um i think they're going to play it on stony brook we'll get into a bunch of that throughout the week but i'm not expecting a disappointing performance and i will say this if it's kind of a little bit underwhelming 
Um, I wouldn't read a ton into it just because of so many guys being injured right now too. Yeah. This, this is a team that's hard to assess in some regards just because, I mean, in some positions you're missing like a third of your players. Yeah. It, it wouldn't be a shock to me if this was like a, a 35 to three win for Oregon. Like, yeah. Just because what Eric said, like you're, you're down to at one of your inside linebacker positions, you're down to your third string guy and that guy had technically an injury in the Ohio State game. Like, there's only so many guys there. So the importance of developing that depth, that's what this game is about, is developing that depth so that when you go to Stanford in two weeks or three weeks, whenever it is, you are prepared. That that fifth string guy at the start of the year, who's now your second string linebacker, is ready to go and isn't going to be overwhelmed by the position and the atmosphere and what's on the line when he gets into the football game because a guy is tired um, or a guy, God forbid, gets hurt again uh, at, at that position. Um, we do have some notable depth chart pieces of news as well. Uh, Jared, I, I guess first and foremost, get us up to speed on the notable changes from week two to week three at the depth chart. Absolutely. So first notable change is that Cam McCormick isn't listed on, on the depth chart, but we kind of went over that as, as to why he isn't. Um, on offense, things remain the same except for the wide receiver position. Uh, at the Z wide receiver, we now have an or. It was just originally Johnny Johnson. Uh, now it is Chris Hudson or Johnny Johnson, which I thought was notable. Uh, we also have another or at the X wide receiver position. It is now Johnny Johnson or Troy Franklin in that order. Uh, so there's been, you know, there's been some fans asking where Troy Franklin has been the last two weeks. He had two catches against Ohio State, played very sparingly in week one against Fresno State. Uh, Coach Cristobal kind of addressed that, said he was nicked up. He said that at about 30 kids today at the press conference. So yeah. read into it what you will. Um, other than that, offense is the exact same as it was last week. Um, although uh, there was one more that I thought was interesting. At left tackle, George Moore is still the starter. But now it is Dawson Jaramillo, then Kingsley Suamatia at the two. So before it was Kingsley ahead of Dawson. Now Dawson has upped him in the uh, in the in the depth chart. Uh, and then for defense, other than the flow thing where he's no longer listed, um, it's a, a lot of change in the secondary. Uh, Bennett Williams and Jamal Hill are now at the star position which is uh, they moved uh, Brian Addison away from that as well. Uh, at uh, field boundary corner, it's now Michael Wright and Triquez Bridges, hmm. which wasn't how it was last week. Uh, Bridges found himself at the boundary corner uh, with Dante Manning and DJ James competing for that first spot. Uh, apparently, DJ James showed enough against Ohio State that he is now listed as the starter for next week with Dante Manning backing him up. Uh, freshman Darren Barkins has been knocked off the depth chart by Bridges' move to field boundary corner. And then the third on the depth chart and, and field boundary corner is Avante Dickerson, another true freshman. The stuff at the corner is pretty interesting. Yeah. I was gonna, mm -hmm. and I think that's where to start. Just breaking this down. I think some of the offensive line, the offensive stuff, probably doesn't move the needle enough to discuss too much. But we talked about this when DJ and Jamal were 
both stated to be rejoining the team and it sounded like inevitably playing soon about was it Jamal Hill or DJ James we thought was going to have a more immediate impact? And I think we all thought it would be Jamal Hill. And I think we were all pretty wrong. Um, DJ James was one of Oregon's – the team selected their players that were players of the game. DJ James was one of them. He came out there made some big plays. And I'm not surprised based upon how he performed against Ohio State to see him where he's located. He earned that spot. Um, Triquez and Dante are really, really good if they're the third and fourth corners. Yeah. Not surprised yes. at all to yes. see Triquez. You're not at all surprised to see one of them move to the other side with Mikhail. Um, but you now have a legitimate two deep where you have, I think, NFL caliber corners with all four of those guys. And I think Mikhail is a first or second round talent. And I think DJ, DJ showed me some stuff. I was really, really impressed with his performance. I, I had been a little bit skeptical if he could kind of. I think I'd even said, like, I don't know if he's going to get a chance to get his job back. I was wrong. It's two weeks into this, and one week after he one week after he played for the first time, he's basically regained his starting position. Um, he's a stud. He's a really, really good corner. Um, and it would be really interesting to see if that's actually the play, how this plays out, if they do start those guys together. For my money, that's probably the right choice, though. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm with you, Eric. I thought DJ would be in a position where he'd have to fight tooth and nail to get his job back, and it took – one week of him being on the football field. I don't think that's also a sign of concern about a Triquez Bridges or a Dante Manning. Because remember, against Fresno State, Triquez Bridges had really good coverage downfield multiple times. I think in the first quarter against Ohio State, he had perfect coverage on a pass that was thrown to, I think it was Chris Olav of Ohio State, one of their star first-round receivers. Um, Dante Manning had that huge breakup on, I think it was fourth down in the end zone in the third quarter against Ohio State. Um, so both Bridges and Manning made good plays in the last two weeks and I thought looked solid and to the point looked good. I, I just think like what Eric said, DJ James is probably a lot better than we were maybe anticipating. His development this offseason has been pretty substantial watching him play against Ohio State and see what he was able to do. And he was tested quite often against, you know, Ohio State opposite Mikhail Wright. You know, they they threw at Mikhail, but they definitely were trying to target guys that Mikhail Wright was not covering if they could. And people are going to freak out that, you know, the passing yards was like 487 for C.J. Stroud or whatnot. But that was literally the best receiving core in the country. You know, they had – two guys that are going to be first round draft picks and their third number one, their third receiver was a five-star guy. Like we typically talk about how USC always has like the best receiving core or maybe a top two or three receiving core in the country. Like that was USC, but on steroids in my eyes, you know, their receiving core is legit. And I felt like they didn't necessarily give up any big plays, you know, from a home run standpoint. I mean, they had the, the one where they went tempo on him, but Mario Cristobal even admitted, like, I was pretty surprised he said this. Like, that was poor coaching. He said they were running tempo, and they put defensive checks on wristbands, and that's why Mikhail Wright had his head down looking at a wristband because he was trying to figure out what the play call was going to be, and the play was snapped before he could figure out what it was. It wasn't anything by Mikhail. Like, he was doing what he was instructed to do, and Cristobal noted they're going to adjust and fix that, and that shouldn't have happened. Um, so I, I walked away thinking, you know, 
they weren't shut down, but you weren't going to shut down that Ohio State team. And uh, so I, I think DJ James is – that shows us how talented he is because Bridges and Manning both have looked pretty darn good in their first two games uh, at cornerback. At um, Can I quickly read one stat before we transition that might ease yeah. some concerns? This is a stat, by the way, that James Crepia from the Oregonian shared with me on the flight back. Do you guys know who's number one in the – this is just about the pass defense and the stats. Do you guys know who's number one in pass defense right now in the country? Uh, is it Bridges? No, no, I'm saying a team defense. The least average yards per game allowed. Do you know which team in the country has the best? Washington. Yep, it's Washington, and they suck. Yeah. So pass defense metric is not great. Oregon is like one of the worst based upon yards per game. Who cares? Yeah. 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 They've also faced two offenses that are pass heavy. Usually yep. pass heavy. And the bets like Matt, like you said, like the best wide receiving core in the country. So, and they didn't allow any, uh, they allowed one explosive play and they kept everything else in front of them, which was like, which was clearly the game plan all along. It, it, it just, you know, the, the talent that they're going to see on, on the field isn't going to compare to, to what Ohio state has. So that number, if you're look if you're worried about the yards allowed per game, that number will go down now in the next couple of weeks. Way and down. it will and it will drop Way pretty down. significantly, you know, yeah. over the next couple of weeks as well. Just because, hey, Stony Brook's bad, Arizona is bad, and Stanford is a team that is predominantly running the football, which will help even things out there as well. Um, they're they're allowing three ninety one per game right now. I bet you after the, by the time they get to the bye, it'll be close to three hundred. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would I would really agree with that. Um, any other notable things on the depth chart that we need to discuss that caught your eye? That's just, hey, we got to talk. We got to break this down. That was it. Um, the wide receivers with a little bit of a change with Johnny Johnson, I don't think is really noticeable. Um, I mean, there's no Isaiah Crocker anymore on the depth chart. It's now just Devin Williams listed as the number two in the X position. Um, other than that, it was really the, really the only interesting part was flow not being listed and the defensive back realignment. Um, real quick, let's discuss. Um, I, I think there's some news outside of Oregon that we need to, to look at, and that's the firing of Clay Helton at USC as their head coach. Um, the promotion of Dante Williams to uh, interim head coach, former Oregon defensive back coach or cornerback coach. Um, I don't think that was a surprise, but I'm surprised Clay Helton got fired week two of the season. Not mm-hmm. that he got fired. I, I was expecting after that Stanford game he, to him get for him to get fired, but to see USC do it in season is pretty remarkable. And I think I saw a stat now that the last three head coaches at USC, full-time head coaches, have all been fired in season. And that's pretty ridiculous for a program that's perceived nationally as a top 10 job. And it is a top 10 job. But uh, Dan Wilkin of USA Today, I thought, brought up a great point. He, he, he argued, you could argue both ways, that they're no longer the premier program in the conference from a job standpoint. It could be Oregon. I think it is. Mm-hmm. I think it shifted. Now, I'm not saying it won't be an attractive position. Um, we should note a very no, a very familiar name has been promoted <laughs> as the interim head coach. That would be Dante yeah. Williams. 
Uh, he was in a cornerbacks coach at Oregon and an incredible recruiting asset. Um, it would be interesting to see how he does as head coach. And yeah. it would be interesting to see if he – Matt, you made the point on Slack. Like, wouldn't it be very USC for them to now go and rattle off like eight straight, nine straight wins? They promote him to head coach, and then they're in the same predicament in like 2025. Um, I don't think they'll do that. I hope they would learn from that. I shouldn't say I hope because my, my guess I don't have the I don't want this to go great for USC ultimately. I mean I don't want it to be best case, um, but but I will say that like I think it's going to be very interesting to see what they do. And this is this is the job in the conference that when it is open, aside from Oregon, I will say, can have the biggest impact on the conference and its viability for playing for championships. And this is a higher they they, they have to hit this one right. They have to knock this one out. Yeah. They, they, they can't miss again. It's it's kind of embarrassing if you look at since Pete Carroll left, who's come in, like Matt said, how they've been relieved of their duties, which is all – and they left guys at Tarmax. They fired guys after two weeks. Um, you know, the other guy – they had the coach in between there had some – he was drinking a lot of booze and saying a lot of stuff at, at team events. I mean, oh, they've, yeah, they've run the gamut here of just disastrous head coaching tenures. And kind of ironically, the two that I mentioned here, Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian, are not actually pretty good head coaches at other jobs, although Texas didn't look very good over the weekend. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a big position for USC. The Pac-12 does need stability from that program, and I think this hire needs to be really good. Jared, are there a couple names you like? There are a couple names. Before I get to that, I would like to say that I think USC waited way too long for this. Oh, 100%. They got been... Meyer last year. They, right, exactly. And there's been this hot seat under Clay Helton for three years now, four years. It seems like every single year he heads into the season on a hot seat. Uh, I don't think USC expected to be as good as they were last year, which really hindered them in their ability to, to fire Clay Helton. Also, giving him an extension, like basically under the table, not letting anybody know about it, and then saying – well, we can't hire Urban Meyer because we just devoted like $25 million to Clay Helton. That probably that still is going to rub people the wrong way. And now that's going to be a big buyout. A um, couple names just from stuff I read, specifically Bruce Feldman's article on it. Uh, you have Matt Campbell from Iowa State, Luke Fickle from Cincinnati, uh, Franklin from Penn State. Uh, I think there was a, a Bob Stoops mention in there at one point. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, uh, a surprise mention from Feldman was Mario Cristobal, which I don't anticipate happening. That is certainly a lucrative job. It's one of the best in the country. It always will be. It is USC. It is the pinnacle of West Coast football. Um, unless they're going to throw him $10 million a year, something egregious, I can't anticipate that happening. Uh, my money is on Luke Fickle. Uh, there was a very interesting tweet today from – Brandon Marcello, 24-7 Sports, uh, who noted that in recent athletic director hirings in, of, of a big program, they've liked to go back to their roots and hire somebody who has already been coaching under them. Uh, so he has Terry Mahar, who got hired at, as the athletic director at UCF, University of Central Florida, hired Gus Malzahn, former coach at Auburn, when he was the athletic director there. Uh, Scott Strickland hired Dan Mullen at Florida. This, so if you go kind of based off that trend, Mike Bond, USC's athletic director, is a former Cincinnati athletic director. He hired Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. Luke Fickle has been good. 
uh, Ohio State alum, just a solid head coach. So if, if I were to put money on it, I think that he would be the obvious choice. Uh, sleeper pick, real sleeper pick, Chris Peterson, former yeah. Washington head coach. Uh, I think they should they should make a run at him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was he was very good at Washington, very good at Boise State. He has a history of just being able to develop players, recruit at as needed. And the thing is, at USC, you know, recruits are just going to fall into your lap. It's not going to be a battle sometimes. You're going to get high four-star, some five-star players. And throwing that with Peterson or Luke Fickle, that's going to be a huge thing. At USC, you need to hire a coach that understands the importance of recruiting, but mm-hmm. isn't that doesn't need to be his strong suit. He needs to just be, most importantly, a developer, a, a guy that's a CEO, a guy that can run a program – can make good hires year in and year out and knows how to, how to, to develop his team. Let your assistant coaches be your recruiters because like Jared said, that school will, will recruit itself as long as you win. And so if you follow a blueprint of your, your position coaches being your elite recruiters, your coordinators and yourself as head coach, be the kind of the guys that are solely responsible for, you know, hammering home the recruiting on campus, but then more importantly, developing, scheming, and building a program and managing it, game in, year in, you will win. You will bring the best recruits. Now, I, I think you know, Mark Cristobal's name has been attached to almost every hot list that's been listed that I've seen in you know the hours that this news came out. Um, and I'll tell you why he's not really a threat to, to get this job at, org- at USC. One, I'm with Eric. I'm with uh, Dan Wilkin. I think the Oregon job right now is the better job. And he's got the better support system out of Oregon. You know, Mike Bond did make some improvements with the staff and with the support staff at USC, but that just happened. And, and it was catching them up to where Oregon is or close to where Oregon is. And Crystal Ball has been at Oregon and has for three years prior and has been building up slowly assembling kind of a super team of staff members. And I can't tell you how big this staff has become under him now in year four compared to where it was prior to his arrival as an assistant coach compared to where it was when Chip Kelly was the head coach. There are more quality, you know, control assistants. There are more analysts. There are more recruiting interns. There there are more recruiting analysts. You know, they, they have got a staff that is huge and it's significantly bigger than what USC has. And he'd have to start all over there. And it hasn't even started with the fact that USC has recruited at a horrible clip the last three or four years. He'd be walking into a program that, A, doesn't fit the style of play he wants to use at USC if he were to go there. So he's going to need time to flip over that roster. They only have like 15 offensive linemen. I think Oregon's got like 25 because of the way they want to play. You know, this program, USC is, is who I'm talking about, isn't set up for a smash mouth, you know, style of football on both sides of the football that Crystal Ball currently runs at Oregon. And it's going to take a lot of time. Does he want to go through that rebuild? And look at the coaching staffs at USC. They have fired – Every single coach, except for Lane, Kif- except for Pete Carroll, who left to kind of get away from being f- 
fired because of the NCAA sanctions that could be coming down on them. So this program is so unstable. And at Oregon, he basically gets to do whatever he wants. He has one or two boosters that he needs to, you know, kind of please and, and, and let into the program and provide access to, to those boosters. And at USC, there are a substantial more amount of boosters who make far less money than a Phil Knight or a Pat Kilkenny and demand far more access to the program than Phil Knight or a Pat Kilkenny get at Oregon. So there's less, you know, booster handling, if you will, at Oregon too. I I just, this doesn't line up 100% crystal ball to to USC. His name's going to get mentioned. We're going to hear it for the next eight months. And I, 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 I guarantee you that's part of, partly why USC probably did it now is you've got to hire a guy. You've got to prevent your program from craving. And now they've kind of created a cloud that's going to hang over Oregon's head for a little bit, whether it's very big or not, of, oh, could Cristobal be leaving Oregon to go to USC? Now, secondly, to tie Washington into this, their fan base is already talking about letting Jimmy Lake go. That job now became the second best job on the West Coast, which will severely hurt if they open up their pool of candidates because they're those all the elite coaches will go. I want to see what USC does before I commit to doing anything for for Washington. A couple of thoughts before we wrap up. Um, I think of the two jobs that well, there's been more, but two primary jobs Mario's been linked to the last couple yeah. of years: Miami and Auburn. Those are better fits from his background, yep. better fits from a program health perspective as well. I think, especially mm-hmm. um, considering where I think USC is headed. Um, and so, like, why would he? T- and, and there's also a loyalty part. He spent this last, and he's been very adversarial with USC. He's made yes. comments about this, and it would feel to me very surprising, and it would be very disappointing, frankly, if this fault, you know, feels hollow, and he takes off. I don't see him leaving for a long time to be honest. In fact, I had a thought last night, which I'll share that I wasn't even thinking about, but I will bring it up. Like it kind of feels like if you look at Nick Saban's coaching tree, Mario Cristobal might be one of the more successful coaches to play on if coach under him. And I kind of wonder if whenever that Alabama job opens up here in the next two to eight years or whatever it is, how strong of a candidate he would be for that. Um, so that's a thought I had um, just because, just because this USC jobs kind of feels like it's it's not really the right move to make right now. I just feel like you're put betting a lot on it. And then last thing is, I think Washington would be very very premature in moving away from Jimmy Lake right now. He's coached nine total games. No, sorry, less than that. Seven total games now. I know he hasn't been great. I don't think he, anybody is saying that the program is is thriving and in a great direction. Does it? I just feel like you can't fire a guy when he hasn't even coached a full season. So I don't expect that job to open up during the season. I guess if they have a just if this is another Tyrone Willingham kind of season where they go over, <laughs> which I'll put that out in the universe, then then he'll be fired after the season. You can count on it. But they're still going to win. I think between three and seven games this year. And if they do that, I think he'll get another shot at it. And that job probably opens up after twenty twenty two at the earliest. That's my perspective at least. It's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Hopefully we get you ready further for the Stony Brook football game, which will be played at 4.30 on Saturday from Odson Stadium, Pac-12 Network. All three of us will be alive and present for that game. Uh, I'm looking forward to a game that's after 
Yeah, it's it's frankly after the morning. Uh, we've had a oh, 11 a.m. Yeah. local time and a 9 a.m. Pacific time football game to cover. Uh, it'll be nice to get some of the day and you know, watch some football and be able to to you know have a normal morning again, which will be nice. So check out DuckTerritory.com for more coverage uh, leading up to that Stony Brook game as we get closer. And until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.